Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. There's a new show on Broadway at the Helen Hayes Theater called Bridge and Tunnel. Today we're joined by the entire cast, all 14 members of Bridge and Tunnel, all embodied in one person, Sarah Jones, who wrote and performs all 14 of those characters. Hi, Sarah. Welcome. Thank you for having all of us. I should say that in quotes. It's only me here in the studio, but I've brought my friends along. I thought maybe all 14 of you would answer at once. <laughs> well, if you give them a chance, believe me, they'd all much you know, rather get me out of the way so they can shine. And there's one in particular. Oh, well, before we even get started, I just wanted to quickly say that I'm a fan. My name is Lorraine Levine, and Sarah, you know, she's a young girl. Sometimes she's so busy worrying about other things, she forgets what's important. So thank God there's you two who really know from theater. I'm so happy to be here with both of you. Well, Lorraine Levine is the second person we meet in the show. The MC Muhammad, is the first we meet, and Lorraine is the first person to participate in a, in a poetry a reading session that basically that's, that's the show. All these different people from multi-ethnic backgrounds all uh, performing poetry that they have written in their own words, so to speak. Right. That's, that's exactly right. And if people aren't so much fans of uh, the idea of going out to hear an evening of poetry, I totally understand. It's not everybody's cup of tea, but we encourage folks to come to the show because it's much more than just the conceit of why all the people are there in the same room together. It's, it's, it's hopefully a bigger um, experience than that. But if you do love the poetry, you'll enjoy it too. Well, the, the, the uh, title, Bridge and Tunnel, comes from... Uh, New York City being five different boroughs, but Manhattan, most people think of Manhattan as New York City when in fact there are four of the boroughs connected by bridges and tunnels. And people from Queens, where the show is set, come into Manhattan via those bridges and tunnels, then they return home by bridges and tunnels. So that's basically where the title comes from. But the show itself is multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-everything, kind of a melting pot just like New York City, just like America in general. It sure is. I mean, I even refer to it as sort of a stew pot, you know, because mm-hmm. instead of all melting into one, everybody's all kind of jostling together in the same, uh, you know, kind of area, the same, ge- you know, we share this geography, we share uh, the streets and the subways. And, and so bringing us all together under one roof literally for an evening is, is kind of a fun idea. We get to laugh a lot together and look at our differences together. Well, I don't want to ask the cliched question of where do you get your ideas, but all of these characters are characters that you've created. These are not, you're not doing what Anna DeVere Smith does, for example, in terms of almost a form of journalism. You're creating these people. What are the impulses and how do you go about creating a character? Well, I start with the basic idea that Everybody enjoys a larger-than-life character, you know, regardless of whether you can relate exactly to the style of speech or, you know, some of the slang or the, you know, given language or cultural background of a character. When you hear someone like Muhammad Ali, hello, this is me. I am Muhammad Ali. Nice to meet you all there in Radio Land. Uh, But uh, when you are meeting me, you do not have to be from Pakistan necessarily or ever have been to 
Pakistan or speak Urdu to be able to relate to me and my experience if you hear a bit about my story. So the fact is that I might, even though I am Pakistani, I might have a lot in common with someone you know. I like to play golf. Uh, I won't tell you my handicap. Please don't make me do that on, on the national radio. <laughs> but uh, other than that, it is really about uh, how the character is relatable beyond even just the specifics of the cultural background. So I think that uh, when I'm, you know, thinking about who I'd like to um, render on stage, you know, who, whose life would I like to explore on stage, even if just for a few minutes, um, perhaps in front of an audience that doesn't have a frame of reference for a certain group of people, I want them to be able to tap in, to really enjoy, uh, you know, whatever the jokes are or whatever the, you know, the poignant moments might be. I want the audience to really be able to relate. And the people that you're you're portraying, they're all real people. Um, are they based on people that you've observed in real life that you've seen on the street, on the subway, on the bus, that sort of thing? Definitely. I mean, they're all loosely based on aspects of real people. Mm -hmm. So I sort of, you know, if, if there's a recipe, it's one part this person and, you know, two parts that, stir a little and shake, and then I end up with, you know, a kind of template in my head for whom I can write because I just sort of turn on their voice and then put myself in a given situation and decide how they would respond in that situation. But it does help that, uh, like another person in this room, I'm a Queens native. Um, <laughs> She's referring to me. <laughs> yes, John and I both hail from Queens, and it's a wonderful place. Um, it's actually, from what I understand, the most diverse county in the world. So right there in Queens, you find you know multiple generations of people who've come from literally every corner of the world, and there are lots of great characters to observe. So I pick up little snippets here and there, you know. A guy on the subway, you know, he's talking like this. He's standing there. He's talking to his friend, you know. They stand there for a while. I think to myself, maybe I'll stay on the train until, you know, this guy gets off. He's pretty interesting. Well, you know? al along that line, my, my wife is a native of Queens also. She grew up in Astoria, which is one section of Queens. And we've known each other 36, 37 years. And when I first started dating her, I recall, it was mostly a Greek and Ukrainian and that sort of a neighborhood. And now it's probably 100 different uh, nationalities all in the same small part of Queens. That's just one section of a, a very, very large county. So your show really, I think, hits on what New York City has become, and certainly the United States to some degree as well. But New York City in the past several decades has really, really changed in all the boroughs, including the four outer boroughs and Manhattan itself. Oh, definitely. And I think the people who come here, you know, can relate in many ways to many of our grandparents and great-grandparents. And it's not just a New York story. It is the American story, as you're saying. I mean, I really uh, was pleasantly surprised to find that wherever I took elements of this show as we were getting it together in the rest of the country, I might perform it in a rural area, um, you know, in the middle of the country, and find that because uh, in a certain town in Iowa, there's been an influx of immigrants from Mexico, for example, uh, to, to do work there, and the German-American folks who came in the 1800s are sort of, you know, remembering their immigrant past, that there's a kind of conversation that applies all over the country. So it is really interesting to think of how those dynamics, you you know, keep changing. As a performer, you got your start as someone who, in fact, was performing in Poetry Slams yourself, and, and that was your first success on New York stages. When did you decide to make the transition to transforming the style and perform as other people? How do you go from being a poet, which is certainly, a, in most cases, a very personal expression, to choosing 
to make your personal expression through the voices of others? Well, it's funny. I come out of this uh, very accidental <laughs> new, I guess I could call it a, a kind of tradition. If I, you know, I've invented a tradition of sorts for myself where there are other people around my age who are sort of coming up through this new um, form of, you know, slam poetry. And uh, it's basically live uh, you know, high energy performance poetry. If you imagine the energy of a stand up comedy routine, but, you know, somebody's more personal thoughts or more, um, you know, more poetic uh, language. And people are very serious about their craft. You know, the best of slam poets really do, uh, you know, do everything they can to make sure there's literary craft there as well. I was going to say, what, what is a slam poet? A slam poet is someone who competes in. Poetry slams. It sounds so funny, but there. Which is what it was a competition? A poetry slam is a competition, and I believe they got started in Chicago. Um, I want to say it was the late 1980s, but I could be wrong. I'm not great on my history with this, as I should be. But they uh, were basically a way to bring poetry, to sort of democratize poetry, to bring it back into the, you know, the coffee houses and the taverns where working class folks wanted to sit around and enjoy some poetry. And it's funny how. You know, expression and, and uh, language, you know, they don't have to be the exclusive domain of, you know, those of us who are lucky enough to go to certain schools. Um, there are lots of people who, you know, write in their diaries or read, uh, you know, a, a, a wide range of poetry for their own enjoyment. And they don't have to be wealthy or, you know, particularly, you know, sounding like this or, you know, so particularly erudite to, to, to love and want to claim poetry for themselves. So they wanted to take it away from people with that kind of accent and give it to everybody. Um, so uh, in addition to... And then to, you turned around and gave it a lot of different accents. And then I turned around and reapplied all these different accents. But the thing about slam poetry is it does engage the audience. It's a very kind of lively, uh, sometimes a raucous experience where there's a uh, kind of back and forth, you know, almost a call and response between the poet and the people in the audience who get to judge them. And in these poetry slams, they are competitive, almost like an Olympic... Uh, event or something, and you literally will have five judges picked at random who may or may not know or know anything about poetry, and who get to hold up a scorecard at the end of your poem as you compete with various mm -hmm. other poets. Obviously, it's sort of a silly uh, um, idea on the one hand, and you know people don't take it so seriously. I mean, often you'll hear it said, "The best poet always loses," but at the same time, it has been this great uh, underground movement all over the country and even the world. I believe there's a national poetry slam. Um, that hosts people from all over the country. There are teams in just everywhere you can think of. I think there are like five from right here in the New York area and then all over the rest of the country. And people just love it. I mean, they really have a good time. Young people, older. It's a really interesting cross-cultural and cross-generational mix of people who are into this slam poetry scene. So I got started that way. And, you know, again, it was really just reading uh, work that was in my diaries that I gradually honed, you know, from my journals to the point where I felt confident enough to confident enough to get up in front of an audience and read it. And then I started to uh, discover that the more I added per elements of performance, the more the audience, you know, seemed to respond to the material. So gradually, some of the poems began to evolve into monologues. And the monologues themselves, as I, you know, sort of branched out as a writer, I began to um, imagine the uh, impressions other people might have of the of a, a given experience. So instead of writing my version of what happened that day, I would write from the perspective of somebody I met in New York on the street. But interestingly, 
you are now on Broadway. Most of the people that we have who come through this studio to talk to us are people who can tell us stories about doing their high school plays and their dreams of being on Broadway. And your route to theater was not that. No, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, I knew I had a mouth that I was going to use, but I came at this uh, without any formal acting training, um, although I've had the incredible good fortune to meet and now, you know, have the support of Meryl Streep, who's probably, you know, my favorite um, actress, uh, actor. And uh, it's funny listening to her, having a conversation with someone who has that breadth and depth and just wealth of experience and understanding of acting. She simply says, acting is just listening. And so that's all I do. But you've also come from a place where you were a solo performer doing your own work in an unstructured environment to now you have a director, you have people around you. And what has that process been for you changing from being just a solo artist to being you are still the solo performer, but it is still in a collaborative environment? Well, I've definitely had to learn how to work well with others uh, in a way that solo shows don't necessarily, uh, you know, when you're on your own, I mean, I can literally remember sort of experimenting on stage and improving and doing all kinds of, you know, just a crazy tightrope walk out there in front of the audience in a way that would have probably given a director a heart attack. So, you know, learning that discipline, learning to work in concert with another person who has a vision and who's helping you shape, um, you know, the kind of information you want to communicate and how to do it so that it really uh, reaches people. That's all been um, a kind of education on the fly for me. And it's been wonderful. I mean, I've had... um, I I think I've just benefited so much from opening up more and, you know, but it's definitely been a process. I was afraid at first. I didn't have any experience. I mean, I really was kind of like, oh, I have these kooky voices in my head and I can't believe anyone takes them seriously. Well, how did you get together with Tony Ciccone? Well, Tony Ciccone, uh, who is the artistic director of Berkeley Repertory Theater, which does such wonderful work, um, was... I believe I met him through Danny Hawk, who's one of my favorite solo performers. I think he's one of the best I've ever seen. Um, And I worked with Danny. My show, the first show I ever did, Surface Transit, uh, was uh, another multi-character piece. And Danny uh, asked if I would let him produce it. And I thought, yeah, (laughs) you know, I was a huge fan of his. And this was uh, five years ago, almost oh six years ago now. And uh, so he made me part of a festival that he put together. And from there, uh, I met uh, Tony Ciccone because Danny and Tony had worked together. And Tony has uh, a wonderful, energetic, passionate style that, um, you know, works so well uh, for a person like me who I was, you know, so kind of limited in terms of my experience and even my language. I mean, I really didn't have many of the tools that an actor uh, who you know is trained and and uh, has been kind of honing those skills for years. I didn't have anything, so I would sort of say, "Upstage, okay. Well, do you mean I go this way now?" <laughs> you know, so <laughs> it's definitely been a wonderful kind of evolution, and and he's been um, you know such an important piece. And how about Meryl Streep? How did she get involved with with you in, in this production? 
Well, a lot of the work I do is fueled by my kind of larger, I would call them humanitarian values. You know, I come from a very, uh, I come from a multicultural background, and I'm very much uh, a believer in the idea of diversity as strength and just, you know, how much we can all learn from each other. And so uh, some of the work I do is uh, around human rights, and and, uh, there's a wonderful organization called Equality Now, uh, that works for it works against violence against women and girls all over the world, and uh, I had met them because of Surface Transit, the first show I did. They asked if I would help dramatize some of the very difficult issues that uh, they were working on and perform at the United Nations. So I wrote a show called Women Can't Wait and uh, talked about laws that discriminate against women. I did that at the UN in front of delegates in this huge, I mean, it was just, again, you could just imagine this really untrained actor, and I'm standing up there in front of people from, you know, delegates from all over the world, speaking to them in their own accents. (laughs) So, you know, talk about a... Uh, throwing myself into a a really potentially fraught situation. But it was great. And uh, Equality Now has lots of, um, you know, sort of prominent supporters, but Meryl is one of their uh, major, um, I guess I would call her an angel. You know, she sort of supports their work and helps amplify uh, the voice that they have out there. And so I met her at a benefit, and Mm. we connected that way. And wouldn't you know, she... She said, I really like what you do, and how can I help you? And I thought, somebody wow. call the EMTs because I'm about to pass out. <laughs> wow. But it, was a, it wasn't a dream, and so far it's been uh, incredible. Well, then she got behind you on the off-Broadway version of this show. For the off-Broadway version of this show, Meryl was an official producer. She mm-hmm. offered to you know, lend her voice in that way, or her, her name, rather, in, you know, quite literally. Um, and that, as you can imagine, is a kind of... Uh, endorsement that you get. I it's, mean, it's the good housekeeping seal of approval for one for Meryl Streep to say this is a great actress. It really made a difference. I mean, my mother was sort of, you know, my mother's a, a, a doctor on Long Island and she, her colleagues, you know, it's a, it's a new level. She, she doesn't have to just walk in and say, come see my daughter's show. Now she can say, by the way, Meryl Streep says you should come see my daughter's show. It's <laughs> wow. a very different thing. But uh, this time around, she's not an official producer. She just uh, continues to be our head cheerleader, as I call call her, and, and that is, of course, a huge blessing. Well, you mentioned the United Nations. You went to the international school. The United Nations International Schools. your parents wanted you to have a multi-ethnic, multicultural upbringing. And I would imagine that had a lot to do with conceiving this show, because you met with and knew people from all different cultures being part of that school. Absolutely. I, I mean, I now can look back and uh, sort of pick out every one of the experiences that was helping train my ear. Uh, for accents and language at that time. I mean, I didn't know it. At the time, I was just hanging out with my friends. But when you go to a school that has, you know, more than 100 nationalities represented, um, you know, you don't even realize how much you're absorbing in the way of, you know, different worldviews and all of that. So uh, it was acting training, I guess, beyond anything I could have imagined or hoped for. You must have a very good ear for language. Before you arrived, Howard and I were kind of speculating what would you sound like as yourself? Because in the show, the 14 different characters, I don't think any of them are the real Sarah Jones, at least not the voice. Right. No, I, I, Sarah Jones, in quotes, don't don't get to make my appearance. So I guess I haven't had my Broadway debut yet, but all the characters <laughs> are, are really enjoying theirs. But I had an interesting reaction as I watched the show. I'd not had the opportunity to see you before, and I, I sat there thinking, I'm so glad I haven't heard her interviewed. And it's ironic, as we sit here interviewing you, 
is there for you as an artist as you become better known, as you're put in this position of talking about yourself and not expressing yourself solely through your characters, do you think that's going to change what you can do as a performer? Do you think as you get to the bigger venue, you lose a little something? That's a great question. I find uh, that the characters' lives, you know, their particular experiences and the, you know, the unvarnished truth of their story is so important that I don't want anything about my own, uh, you know, particular process to get in the way. I really want to make sure that they uh, are center and and that they are the focus um, all the time. So I sometimes when I, you know, do appearances and things will come out in character and will not, you know, kind of quote unquote appear or speak as myself until I've really, you know, given the characters room to breathe on stage for a bit. So there is some of that. And you trained for that. I understand at one point you actually took a job as someone else. I did take a job as someone else at one point. You, Good you have research. to explain this story. Well, I and again, I, I can't tell you enough how much this was all just totally accidental and Especially unplanned. in this day of false memoir, I should right. say. Right, in this yes. day of false memoir. Oh, boy. Well, fortunately, I haven't written... Well, when I write my stuff down, it'll, it'll, I'll lay it all bare. But I, I think um, at the time, I was just... Uh, I wanted a job, and I was home from college. I actually left college early, and I, I'm still a rising junior. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. But um, I left Bryn Mawr, and I came back to New York. And at the time, you could get a really good, lucrative job if you were a tall woman who looked like me. 5'11". Right, 5'11", and you were a hostess at a restaurant, one of those people who, you know, is sort of snotty to you but seats you. You know, I don't know why that's a fixture of the New York restaurant scene, but my job would sort of be to, you know, escort people to their table a little bit grudgingly. And uh, the place that I applied, they said, oh, well, you're great, but we only hire British girls here. And I thought, well, that's not fair. And then I thought, well, hey, if they only hire British girls, let me see if I can deliver. I said, all right, well, who do I come back and talk to? I'll, I'll come back and talk to the manager. They gave me the name, and I came back a bit later, and um, I was this version of Sarah Jones. And I remember I walked into the interview and everything, and, you know, he was really nice, and we were really sort of, you know, getting on really well, and it was really fantastic. And the next thing I knew, I had the job. And the only problem was that occasionally people would ring me at work, and I'd have to remember, you know, I'd have to sort of tell everyone, you know, my closest friends, my roommates, my boyfriend and that (laughs) whatever you do don't make me break character at work you know I'd have to sort of pick up the phone and stay in character and to this day because they hired other British girls I'm sure somebody picked up on the fact that I couldn't tell them much about my background you know where I was from in London etc but um, at the time I held on to that job for two months so you can imagine that's quite a bit of um, method acting (laughs) going on very very good training very good training yeah Got Howard, paid for it as well. <laughs> Howard was having his thoughts as he was sitting in the audience. I was having mine. Many of the people that we interview on this program, actors on this program, in their own minds create kind of a backstory for their characters. They kind of develop a personality so they know who they're acting more than what's written in the script. Do you, for your characters, invent them as people beyond what we hear as the audience? Do you create characters in your mind as to what you know uh, Lorraine Levine really is like or, or Mrs. Ling, the Chinese woman from Flushing, what she's really like? Absolutely. I mean, I I know, I was saying this to someone recently, I know when Muhammad missed one of his kids' soccer games. I know, you know, where Lorraine goes on vacation. Um, And, you know, for Mrs. Ling, for example, um, it's a particularly important character 
from the perspective of accent and how uh, usually in theater, um, you know, depending on who the character is, uh, we aren't always exposed to a wide variety of accents. Um, There's unfortunately, I think, in our culture, uh, a stigma attached to certain accents. You know, if you speak the way I was just speaking a moment ago, that's sort of charming, isn't it? Mm -hmm. But if you... If you, uh, if you sound more like Pauline Ling, and that is uh, a Chinese American person who has a Chinese, uh, you know, a pronounced Chinese accent, there can be this problem that people automatically they will uh, maybe not take you as seriously, or there is an automatic uh, reaction uh, to dismiss a person because they have a strong accent. But really, all that means is that they will have uh, a very interesting backstory. Imagine the hard work to learn two languages. Most Americans, unfortunately, don't speak more than one language. So I think that's the kind of thing that, uh, in my mind, when I'm thinking of backstory of the character, I want to make sure that we give them the fullness of their humanity, try to counteract some stereotype uh, for the audience and for people's minds. So where is Mrs. Ling from before she moved to Flushing? Queens. Uh, well, before I moved to Flushing, Queens, I came from Canton Province. But I will tell you this: I start first in San Francisco uh, with my husband's family, and uh, then we, my daughter, was born in San Francisco. Then we moved to Flushing at that time, and uh, we had a very good business opportunity uh, to work here, and of course with Chinatown. So I have a whole uh, story that, of course, my life story, just like you, John, or you, Howard. Everyone have to have that story. So, do you know any Mrs. Ling? in real life? I do. I do know some real, uh, you know, people who are friends of my parents, uh, friends of my parents, parents of my friends, or, um, uh, you know, especially growing up, in, as I said, in a diverse place like Queens. But where in Queens did you grow up? Well, I grew up in Flushing and Jamaica. I uh-huh. also, my mom lived in Bayside at one point. I lived with her. So there's a wide range of people from, you know, all different backgrounds. And literally, if you follow a kid home in Queens, you're, you know, very likely, I don't know the exact statistic, but you're probably at least, you know, uh, uh, it's probably at least half the time you're going to find parents who got here recently. And it's fantastic because, you know, all the kids are hanging out together and, you know, kind of sharing the same culture of whatever it is, Nickelodeon or MTV or whatever it is. But when they get home, you know, there might be Punjabi culture at home or, you know, Chinese culture or whatever it is. So We had mentioned earlier, of course, that the show began off-Broadway in a small venue to great acclaim, sold out, extended run. I'm wondering... In the transfer to Broadway, although you are in the smallest Broadway house, it is still a change in scale. How the show, how you have changed the show, and then in the now week that you've been in performance on Broadway, have you found that the show has changed because of the different audience and and the space that you're doing it in? You know, so far, first of all, the Helen Hayes Theater is such a wonderful, uh, intimate venue. It's twice the size of where we were, but I've had a couple of people comment that it feels even more uh, suited to the show and, and lends even more of that kind of closeness that I need uh, with the audience. So that's, You were down, you were at the Culture Project, the and their space project. is rather wide. It's very wide, and it has, uh, I mean, it's just an interesting configuration that's not a proscenium. It's not, um, you know, it doesn't. It, it has many benefits, but the, it's very different from a traditional theater space. So uh, in this case, I, I've found that the only changes uh, we really made were the ones we knew we wanted to anyway. 
We wanted to make sure that the characters' lives um, sort of got to move forward in the same ways that ours have over the last couple of years. Uh, but other than that, we really haven't made huge changes. And I think that's sort of a credit to the to the Broadway audience. It's a credit to um, you know people's willingness to take the journey with me. Um, and and it's so great to be doing it uh, you know on Broadway. It's really it's <laughs> exhilarating. Well. As we sit in the audience uh, preparing for the show, it's about a 90-minute show beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, most people read through the playbill at some point or another. And there's an interesting um, line in the playbill. If you read through your bio toward just about the end, I think you, from your facial expression, you know where I'm going on this because uh, Howard and I had talked about this briefly before we went on the air. I'm going to read from the playbill now. It says um, that you were the first artist in history to sue the Federal Communications Commission for censorship. The lawsuit resulted in reversal of the censorship ruling which had targeted your hip-hop poem uh, recording, Your Revolution. What was that all about? Well, it's funny. My uh, relationship to hip-hop is sort of similar to my relationship to the characters. It's um, since I was a kid, I was a, you know, I came up during the time when hip-hop was uh, uh, taking over youth culture, and uh, it was such an important part of my development. I listened to some of the political stuff, you know, Public Enemy and all of these um, uh, seminal rap groups, I guess you could call them. And uh, the at the same time that I was at the UN school absorbing all of these other cultures, um, I was, you know, a big part of the hip-hop um, I don't know. I guess I would call it. They, they call it the hip hop nation. You know, I was a, I was definitely a citizen. So uh, eventually, as I was writing my poetry, um, the uh, kind of hip hop and poetry connection was very uh, clear in my writing. I would sometimes write uh, in a style that was you know reminiscent of some of my favorite rappers and that kind of thing. And it's funny because whenever I tell this story, my mother says, "Yeah, you know, people wouldn't think of rap and hip hop as ever you know being directly related to." the work that you do or, you know, it has such a bad reputation for a lot of people um, that they wouldn't be able to think of it as a creative um, or, you know, worthwhile art form. But for me, it, it totally was. I mean, it was uh, a great way to express myself in a way that my peers could relate to. So that was fantastic. And I ended up writing a kind of parody of some of the lyrics that I was hearing on the radio that were misogynist and really degrading to women. Pop music as well as hip-hop. I mean, unfortunately, hip-hop doesn't have the market cornered on, you know, degrading silly images of women and all of that kind of stuff, materialism, etc. So I wrote this parody, and it was of songs that were already playing on the radio. But my version, which took the lyrics that were already playing and sort of turned them on their ear so that, you know, it reclaimed them and made the song more empowering for girls and women and um, youth in general, my version got censored. Why? Well, they said that it was indecent and pandering, but they could, because that's how the FCC, you know, it has these rulings, but they couldn't tell me exactly why. So they refused to... Uh, you know, single out whatever the words were. There were none of the seven, you know, word George Carlin words or anything yeah, like there, that. Yeah, there were seven words that are prohibited from being on terrestrial radio. On terrestrial right. radio, right. And uh, and unfortunately, uh, the FCC was unable to tell me exactly what was indecent about my poem. It was just sort of but a... But they know be- it when they see it. Right. It was sort of a because <laughs> I said so. I know it when I see it. Exactly. Right, right. And so the only other artist that was affected by similar censorship was Eminem. Hmm. So here I am. I'm this, you know card-carrying, you know, humanitarian, performing at the UN. I was on the cover of Ms. Magazine. But suddenly I'm being called, like, a, a, you know, this 
uh, I don't know, a, a, a body rapper like a, a Little Kim or a, you know, not that there's anything wrong with, you know, how people want to express themselves. We should all have the right to express ourselves in, in, without there being double standards. You know, I don't want to come down on anyone's uh, choices. I, I'm uh, anti-censorship. So that's why this was so absurd. Here I was, you know, trying to give an alternative to some of the images of women as, you know, whatever it was, degrading or oversexed or whatever those images were. And I got slapped with uh, an indecency thing that suggested that I was, you know, exactly all of the above. So it really, um, to me, was an example of the FCC's not being in touch with um, you know, contemporary culture enough to know the difference between my work and somebody else's. And unfortunately, they were really trying to push their, um, uh, I think it was sort of this family values agenda that they thought they were serving. But really, they ended up having to back down because we, uh, you know, pointed out to them that there was nothing indecent about my poem if they could let everything else play on the radio as it was. Well, typically, the FCC doesn't sit around thinking to themselves, well, gee, what can we uh, take a stand on today? They usually react to somebody filing a complaint or bring something to their attention. Did somebody complain about your... Yes. Actually, what happened was there were uh, a couple... I mean, it was my recording was being played on basically public radio, college radio, that kind uh-huh. of thing. And it was sort of uh, this, you know, young woman's hip-hop anthem type of thing because it was offering this alternative that said, hey, we are not going to, you know, let you just say anything you want about us. And uh, the funny thing was it was getting airplay for just that reason. It was on like a woman's, uh, you know, uh, empowerment hour or something on mm-hmm. the radio. Mm-hmm. And somebody heard it and there had been this sort of concerted push on the part of a couple of of, um, I would call them more radical right-wing groups, to monitor the radio, just sort of telling people, sit by your radio, listen to everything, and call and complain as often as you can um, to sort of, you know, make their political voice heard. And so that's how I got, sna- you know, snared in this uh, crazy dragnet. But then the the whole thing was overturned. Yes, it was overturned because I, we sued. I said, this is absurd. I mean, I'm, there's nothing indecent about my poem. And this is obviously, again, just the FCC being totally misguided and how dare they use my tax money to you know do this kind of crap and uh, so we ended up suing and getting them to reverse uh, the ruling because clearly they had no there was no merit to what they were saying we're going to have to let you go to the theater but I do want to ask you've been doing this show now certainly from the Culture Project it was already a year since you've been doing it you went back out to Berkeley after to continue to develop it you're doing a limited run here on Broadway. So then what's next? Well, we're pretty sure that uh, if people will have us, we'll be uh, coming to cities around the country. Uh, and I have no more details than that. I only know that that's something that's um, definitely been talked about. I've been told not to go making any plans. But you're planning to live with Bridge and Tunnel a while longer. I am definitely planning to keep traveling these bridges and tunnels for a while longer. Any thoughts of performing the show uh, elsewhere in the five boroughs of New York, going out to the outer boroughs? I would just love it. In (laughs) fact, I did get to do uh, a little bit of a preview in Queens in a wonderful theater that, uh, you know, is definitely the inspiration, one of the inspirations for uh, the whole evening. So that was really gratifying. What sort of reactions do you get from people that you've grown up with who've seen the show? And also, you perform characters that you're not. You perform a Jewish woman, you're a Chinese woman, you know, performing other ethnicities and all that. What kind of reaction do you get from, from people? Well, I'm happy to say some of the, uh, between the email and just the things that people will say to me sometimes on the street if I'll see people, 
they'll say, I don't know how you, are you sure you're not, you know, this? Are you sure you don't have a little of this in you or that in you? Because I saw you do the, you know, the Chinese woman and I'm Chinese and I swear, you know, you sounded just like my mother and it was so weird. So I love those kinds of reactions. When people uh, sort of, ver- you know, sort of affirm for me that all of the work I've been doing to make sure that the accents are accurate and that the stories feel true to people who are really from those backgrounds. How often do we get to see characters from different backgrounds on a Broadway stage? It's not all the time. And I want to make sure that I, you know, give every one of those characters credit for the wonderful people that they are. Let me once again mention the name of the show, Bridge and Tunnel, running at the Helen Hayes Theater right now. You can go see it right now, except Mondays. You're dark on Mondays, dark right? Dark on Mondays. Through March 12th, which is a Sunday, so a month and a half or so still to be able to get to see Bridge and Tunnel. Sarah Jones, thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage Center. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Sarah. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online on demand for free from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John von Susten for Downstage Center. That's a wrap, and thank you.